to another Fudson Film Podcast, guaranteed to be the best podcast that you are currently listening to, unless you are also listening to another podcast, in which case her guarantee is not valid. I am Scott Morris, and I'm joined today by Craig Eastman. Oh God! Oh Jesus Christ! <laughs> That's right, it's a terrifying episode coming up. Uh, we've we've made our feelings pretty clear on, clear on horror films of Kira, Kira also. Kira, Kira Knightley. We made Kira Knightley very clear on her opinions of recent modern horror films, and that she still won't return our calls. That bitch. Um, yes, but essentially, all modern horror films are so close to being garbage that we've consigned pretty much the entire genre to the ignore pile. But that's not entirely fair. Uh, so we thought we'd take a return to the genre's arguable heyday in the 1970s to look at six of the most highly regarded horror films that the world has yet seen. Surely this will rekindle our love of things that go bump in the night and then stab you in your bumps. Find out, as we discussed, don't look now, The Bucker Man, The Exorcist, The Texas Chainsaw Massacre, The Omen and Halloween uh, as, a, as a word of warning. We will not shy away from spoilers in this podcast, so you've been telt. Uh, that's particularly applicable, I think, to Don't Look Now in the Wicker Man, as they've been a bit mm. less absorbed by pop culture zeitgeist as the rest of the band, so I think maybe a little bit more vulnerable. Yes. Yes. Uh, so, do you have any, any general thoughts on horror films of of recent times or in the 70s? Are you, are you a big horror fan? Or like, or like me, you're a bit uh, cold in the whole prospect of it? Uh, of of modern horror, uh, I would offer this pish of seventies horror. <laughs> I would offer you this markedly less pish. Um, yes, uh, horrors. It's it's um, an inordinately popular genre and a very profitable one for the studios currently because audiences apparently take a great deal of crack um, and don't know what a good <laughs> film looks like. So, um, I mean, traditionally, horror films, despite the reliance on um, effects work in general, uh, generally have the least amount of money spent upon them um, yeah. and have a captive audience for some reason, um, which typically generates uh, generous profits uh, for studios who put minimal effort into the actual production thereof. So uh, look at Bloomhouse uh, Pictures recently um, for a good example of a studio which is uh, which is uh, making a great deal of bank off the back of, I don't know, uh, again, just people's bizarre, <laughs> bizarre fondness for what no longer really to me is termed horror. Um, it's become a jump scare. Um, yeah. it's become a fairground ride of jump scares. I've, I've, I've seen one or two films in the past decade which actually have managed to unsettle me in a way which was, um, slightly scary. Uh, and everything else I've seen falls neatly into the category of just quiet, 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 loud. Yes. Um, <laughs> and apparently that's a horror movie. That and obviously the torture porn stuff, uh, propagated by the likes of Hostel and the Saw movies, which seems to rely more on gore and brutality than actually being all that scary in uh, a quantifiable way. So, which is not to say I'm, I'm, I'm not afraid of the prospect of being horribly mutilated, but, um, in, in the context of those movies, it's, it's not the effort at horror that certainly, uh, the directors in the movies we're going to talk about tonight, at least we're making an attempt at, uh, and quite often, uh, I, I think a fair number of the movies we'll talk about tonight actually can be seen to, uh, to have succeeded at that. 
Um, some not so much. But uh, yeah, I think definitely the 70s, there was a great deal more experimentation. It was still a genre very much in its infancy and taken more seriously by not just established directors, but also sort of groundbreaking new directors seemed very interested in the genre. And for that reason, I think a lot of the movies we'll talk about tonight um, we must always keep in mind that these uh, movies don't so much rely on tropes as being the movies which uh, laid down the tropes and established yeah. them. Uh, so they have to be viewed in that context. Um, but it was certainly a more exciting time for horror movies, the 70s, I think we can probably agree, uh, than the 2000s and beyond. The new millennium hasn't really offered us anything in the way, <laughs> but since since we got over uh, J-horror and, and K-horror um, at the start of the new millennium, there doesn't really seem to be a lot filling the void at the moment so I don't know what are your thoughts on it Scott yeah, more or less the same I was waiting for L horror to appear but that never really never really popped out um, yeah it's a strange one I've never really sought out horror movies at any point and not I've never really found any great attraction to them so no, this is I, I tend to come across them by a, recommendation yeah so this was very much a, a spelunking exercise to kind of see if I can understand why people like these films in any kind of real capacity that most of the ones I agree with what you're saying it's just loud noises and I get enough loud, loud noises in my day-to-day life yes um was working next to a workshop will do that for you so there's uh, <laughs> not been a great deal of modern stuff that I appreciate uh, there is some uh, previous ones that I do. I mean, this is actually the first podcast we've done where I have seen all of these movies before and I did look forward to mm. talking about pretty much all of them. I think they're all interesting. Some of them hold up better than others. And uh, yeah, I think there's definitely more interest to be had with these 70s ones. I don't think we could put together a podcast based on modern horror that would have the same uh, level of things to talk about and uh, perhaps as a challenge well, for our listeners. If you can think of some that would make a decent podcast, yes. shout in, let us know. Yes, absolutely. I can't. I can't imagine us putting together a podcast of um, six modern horror movies that wouldn't end in at least one of us throwing ourselves underneath a bus. <laughs> um, but uh, yes, uh, I think we've probably got more interesting things to talk about with these ones tonight. So. Um, I suppose, shall I kick off? We'll do this in roughly chronological order, as you stipulated, Scott, in our yes. Slack channel, with the caveat that uh, we're not taking into account uh, movies which were um, banned or uh, censored and released in their uncut forms at a later date. So this is purely chronological in production date. And we'll kick off with Don't Look Now. Donald Sutherland is an immensely likeable screen presence in almost everything he's appeared in, uh, from serious roles such as in Clute and Invasion of the Body Snatchers to more effervescent fare such as Kelly's Heroes. Sutherland embodies a slightly awkward everyman here that has endeared him to audiences for decades, and more recently to casting directors with limited financial resources at hand. Uh, Julie Christie <laughs> is likewise an iconic screen presence in her own right, treating audiences to a back catalogue of starring roles in small, little-known indie titles such as Dr. Zhivago, Far From the Madding Crowd, McCabe and Mrs. Miller, and... Um, Dragonheart? Fair play to them both then for entertaining the call to arms from Maverick British director Nick Roeg, uh, whose borderline batshit directorial debut phase kicked off with his 1970 classic performance, which the less the least said about <laughs> the better. Moving on to Walkabout and then 1973's Don't Look Now, our movie in question. 
Relatively straightforward title, if a little twisted. Don't Look Now tells the story of young couple Laura and John Baxter, Christy and Sutherland, with the movie opening upon the accidental drowning of their young daughter, Christine. Uh, Understandably burdened with unimaginable grief, the routinely sceptical John sets aside the fact that he had some form of premonition as the event was unfolding, and the couple leave their young, young son Johnny at home in England, while John's work as a restorative architect, or something, takes them to Venice. Uh, While John heads up the team working on a dilapidated church, Laura busies herself with the sights and sounds of Venice, happening across two old English women also on vacation, one of whom is blind. Naturally, the blind old lady is psychic, and tells Laura that Christine is happy in the next life, a revelation later scoffed at by John, but which lends his wife a release from her despair and reignites the couple's relationship. Now... The psychic Biddy is aware that John too has the gift and offers several warnings of impending disaster should he not return home. And while one is sympathetic to his rationalistic demeanour, by the time he has had his third or fourth close call with the infinite, it is very hard as an audience member not to start yelling, F***ing go home, John, at the TV. (laughs) Repeatedly ignoring that his visions all apparently come to pass in some form, John plods on with his work, engaging in all sorts of circumstances that require Sutherland to impart some really terrible ADR work. In fairness to Rogue, his experimental visual and editing styles are not too intrusive here, functioning just highly enough to keep the viewer on his or her toes as flash cuts that may be past or future occasionally pop up to signify that something is awry, and it certainly lends itself to building some measure of dreadful anticipation. What is not so successful, however, is the movie's descent into madness as John begins pursuing what he thinks may be the spectre of his daughter through the dark and misty streets and waterways of Midnight Venice, only to meet his end upon the realisation that his quarry is in fact a mentally unbalanced midget with a knife. Despite knowing that this was coming due to the movie's reputation as a bona fide horror classic and the inescapable spoilers that have come from a thousand conversations around shocking moments in movies, I was not prepared for just how silly this denouement actually is. Uh, Far from being shocking, it is, in the harsh light of the new millennium, totally daft. And while it may have shocked audiences at the time, here it merely baffles. At this point, Rogue's attempts at emulating a clever person by arbitrarily calling back to previous arbitrary visual cues simply belies how little substance there is to this whole palaver, and when you strip away any assumption of a deeper message to leave a man who didn't listen to it psychic and got pwned by a midget, that's a pretty disappointing conclusion. There are those who defend this movie to the hilt as a pinnacle of the genre, and to them I say, I wish you well in all your endeavours, but I will be watching them with suspicion from now on. Utter nonsense, and this is the po- this is the point at which you tell me you agree wholehearted, uh, disagree, sorry, wholeheartedly with that. I find this to be a classic. Well, um, what what I'd have to say first is right. The first time I watched this, this is the first uh, time I'd seen it. I hadn't heard a damn thing about it at all. Right. So that made it quite a lot easier to get into, uh, and when you don't know what's coming. It does actually, I think, manage to do a pretty good job of building up a lot of tension. And of course, now we all know what's happened um, from from the various internet videos and such like. Uh, it, it's kind of harder to take it seriously. And it is a film that very much does not stand up to any repeat viewing whatsoever. <laughs> um, at least in levels if you want to look at it as a horror film. Once you know the, the ending, which blindsided me first time and when you don't know something like that's coming it is certainly a freak out mm-hmm. um, and I, it was one of the few horror films I did actually see when I was, I don't, I don't know, too probably a bit too young to be actually watching them somehow 
must have been on BBC Two or something. I forget what exactly when, but it was on the telly. I watched it. I didn't know this was coming. I was thrown off balance by Roeg's dreamlike, nightmarish uh, qualities that he produces. Certainly towards the end, a man who's never met a narrative that he can't fracture. So this is, uh, <laughs> I think, it worked for me. Uh, you get a, a lot of alienation. Uh, Perhaps the only thing he's done better than this, I think, would be uh, the man who fell to Earth in terms of the, the mm. kind of technical ways of doing weird editing tricks to try and build up some sort of uh, some tension towards the ending. But yes, as you say, once you know the ending's coming, it is just a bit too silly. Mm. Um, and if- I wouldn't, my beef with the ending was that there's no reason for it to be that ending. If it, if it had been justified in some context through the movie, you know, through the previous couple of reels as to why that was the case then i wouldn't be quite so <laughs> flip about it but I mean, I mean it mentions a couple of times that, that there is a serial killer but there's no particular reason for it to be no uh, 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 an aged midget with a butcher's knife wearing the uh, same outfit as his same... daughter when she died yeah, it's, yeah. It, it is it, it's very much a sort of ending that's been retrofitted onto it but mm. it doesn't really uh, work when you actually know what's coming it's just um, the whole thing's just totally the emperor's new clothes i mean uh, the 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 visual callbacks at the end as um as Sutherland's character is in his death throes uh, after the after the, oh and I, I think I'm incorrect actually in saying knife because is it not a meat cleaver yeah, yeah. yes a meat cleaver so uh, as Sutherland's character is in his death throes on the floor you get these sort of like cuts to previous to to previous visual cues uh, earlier in the movie so as he's thrashing around his his foot breaks the pane of glass in a in a small window uh, in the uh, church or wherever it is and you get this cut um, this flash cut back to when I think one of the kids ran over a pane of glass on their bike or something and it's like, oh look look do you see how his foot's broken the glass and that calls back to when someone else broke some glass yes. that's not clever that's, that's no, not even a coincidence there's no purpose in that and in the same way having this this stabby little person dressed up as um, dressed up in the same outfit as Dort when she died is uh, uh, some sort of pretense at saying something which it absolutely is not. Hmm. No purpose to any of it. And just, I hadn't seen this movie before, and perhaps um, uh, I think it's the only one on the list that I hadn't seen before, actually. And uh, with that in mind and, and what you say, I mean, perhaps I've been thrown for a loop by the fact that I did know what was coming. Um, and so, you know, not going into this, uh, I've. I was going to say a virgin, not going in, not going into this um, with film. any preconception or understanding of what was going to happen in the end. I think maybe maybe that has detracted from it slightly, but I still I still stand back and try and view this this two hours objectively, and I'm absolutely baffled, absolutely baffled <laughs> as to why it's held in quite the esteem that it is. Yeah, uh, it it is not something I think that holds up when you know the ending. Uh, if you somehow, and obviously you can't now if you're listening to this, but if you if anyone's listening who did not somehow know the uh, the twists on first viewing, I'd be interested to know if they they agree Ooh. with me that it did actually work and uh, draw you into this, uh, as you say, on rational reflection no it doesn't really hold up um but i i still have fond memories of that first time i saw it because it was one of the first mm. times that i've actually been skeeved out by something that i've seen yeah and, and uh, I, I, I suspect actually really wasn't expecting i suspect actually we might be having the same conversation uh with a roles reversed about maybe one or two of the other films we'll talk about tonight but let's uh let's see if that is in fact the case yes shall we crash on to the wicker man then oh let's and not, we hasten to add the Nick Cage version. Oh, uh, this, not the bees. 
<laughs> this is the late 1973 outing directed by the wonderfully named Robin St. Clair Remington Hardy, <laughs> uh, which sees mainland police sergeant Neil Howey, played by Edward Woodward, get wind that a young girl, Rowan Morrison, has gone missing on the remote Scottish Isle of Summer Isle. He hops into the seaplane to start an investigation, but is not prepared for what he finds when he gets there. Uh, suspicions are immediately raised when the local bumpkins deny all knowledge of Rowan's existence. Thinking that they're hiding something, Howie checks various sources, such as the local school's registers, finding that Rowan was indeed present recently. On trying to uncover why the locals are lying to him, he finds himself exposed to the local religious beliefs, which are even more shocking. Howie's a fiercely devout Christian, and the residents of Summer Isle most certainly are not. Uh, while his mind appears to be blown by the school teacher describing to her kids that the maples uh, to be used in the upcoming harvest festival are phallic symbols, it's presumably starting to dribble out of his ears when he stumbles across a field full of folks copulating with wild abandon. He appears to be thinking of a way to mass arrest the entire island when an invitation to see Lord Summer Isle, played by Christopher Lee, appears, who explains, to an extent, the reasons behind the island's peculiar religious views. His Victorian ancestors created a strain of fruit trees that would thrive in Scotland's not particularly welcoming climate and convinced the economically depressed islanders that worshipping the old pagan gods of the land, sun and sea would help the crops grow. And, well, it sort of stuck, in defiance of all farming knowledge, even at the time. It's not like the nitrogen fixing cycle is a modern discovery or anything like that. Uh, but anyhow, Howie's led to believe that Rowan is not dead, as the islanders now claim, but that they intend to sacrifice her to improve the harvest. He sets about searching door-to-door -to, -door to find her, while being mocked in quite obscure fashion by the islanders, eventually infiltrating their celebrations in order to find and rescue Rowan. This does not work out well for Howie. And <laughs> I remind you about that spoiler warning at the top of the show, as it transpires that this has all been a trap for Howie, not a rescue mission, as the pure virginial Howie is captured and burnt as a sacrifice to the old gods and the titular wicker man. Oh, God. Oh, Jesus Christ. <laughs> now, viewing this through the lens of history, I think one of the most interesting things about it is how it subverted the genre norms before they'd been properly established. Mm. While anyone who's watched Scream will know the broadly accurate rules of horror, in particular those who give in to the temptations of the flesh or the first in the firing line, Wicker Man is almost the complete inverse. Our hero remains chased, even when Britt Eklund is somehow trying to seduce him from another room. Uh, but it's this that makes him the target. Rather than being the only one that survives, he's the only one that's killed. Uh, so this is one of the more experimental horrors on the list, which is something that's not so common in modernity. I can't remember the last time I've seen a modern horror film with such a strong affinity for folk music, for example. Mm. Um, indeed, ending aside, this isn't really making any attempt to horrify you, unless perhaps you're as puritanical in your worldview as Howie is, which I don't believe was a majority opinion back in 73, and it's certainly not now. There's perhaps a case that it's unsettling, as we're pretty much kept as much in the dark about what's going on as how he does, and the local customs are, by our standards, odd, although only because they have a rather less effective PR department than Christianity. Oh. Communion's hardly any objectively less daft to belief than reincarnation, but again, that might be a rationalist in me speaking out. Uh, the Wicker Man is a film that I respect on a lot of levels. I think that it's a, a kind of interesting experiment in what you can do with the horror film and, and the horror genres, and it's a, certainly an evolution from the, the kind of hammer horror stuff that Britain had been putting oh. out before then. Uh, it's interesting on a great many levels. I can't say it's ever actually a film that's scared me or unsettled me in any particular way. And in, in terms of it being a horror film, 
I don't think it hits those uh, beats quite right. But in terms of it just being a really interesting bit of cinema, mm. I'll, I'll grant it that. And it certainly uh, plays off this uh, tremendous performance from Edward Woodward, who we don't see enough of, for my opinion. And uh, yeah, it's an enjoyable film. I don't think it's a particularly good horror film. I think it's quite a good film. It's quite an interesting film. Uh, certainly a, one of the cult classics that is definitely well worth looking at. I absolutely love The Wicker Man. Um, I think I probably saw it for the first time around 2000 when the DVD um, special edition was first released. Mm. I think that was my introduction to it, and I kind of immediately fell in love with it. I think you're right, it doesn't necessarily deliver horror in a traditional sense, but what it what it does for me is it, it evokes this very distinct air of uh, almost a almost a dreamlike horror or or dread, where the events that transpire are are far enough moved from what we understand in our day to day lives to be alien, but at the same time close enough to be not unbelievable. It's there's a very and I think about the you know the um, the scene uh, specifically where Rudolph's character is chasing the mast figure um, round the village mm-hmm. um, and keeps catching sight of it and I think shaking its uh, shaking his maracas or whatever <laughs> <laughs> or whatever happened from around corners. There's a real sort of it's got that feeling of being trapped inside a dream and, and realising that you're inside a dream and not being able to 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 get out of it. It's got that hyper-real sense about it. And I found it, the first time I watched it, I found it really quite captivating. And even now, going back, I didn't actually re-watch it for this podcast because I watched it recently enough anyway. But um, even now, I still find a great deal to enjoy in it. And um, it's if, if, it, if it must be pigeonholed as a horror film, then it's definitely amongst my favourite horror films. But I think you're right. I don't think, I don't think horror is necessarily the right pigeonhole for it. Um, it's, it's no more a horror film than perhaps Eraserhead is a horror film. You know, yes. It's just audibles. Yeah, absolutely. It's almost as, it's, it's as much a police procedural or a thriller as, as uh, a horror movie. Um, it it works very well at building that sort of impending sense of, um, you know that I think unsettling is the right word that, uh, to use. Scott, you used the word unsettling before. It works very well to build this unsettling atmosphere, um, that leaves you in no doubt that something dreadful has happened or is going to happen, um, and that that's where it's most effective. And to its credit, apart from obviously the shock of the ending. It kind of sticks to its guns that way. It doesn't. It doesn't try and deliver any um, thrills or moments of gore or anything like that. It sticks to its guns and it 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 works. It picks away exclusively at that atmosphere building thing, and that's what I think. That's why it succeeds so well. To be honest, it doesn't allow itself to be distracted by, you know, some of the some of the traits of the genre that um, have become paramount in recent years. So yes. Very, very interesting film and uh, one that I love dearly. And you know there's a good reason why we don't see much of Edward Woodward recently, right? <laughs> yes. <laughs> <But. laughs> we Yeah, we certainly... It, it makes you wonder why Edward Woodward didn't get more work in large yeah. um, starring roles like this uh, while he was still with us. And arguably the pinnacle of his career, I think. The Equalizer aside, perhaps. <laughs> yes, yes. He's probably more remembered for stuff like The Equalizer. <laughs> but uh, yeah, yeah. Um, as an actor, I think this is his... Easily his best performance, at least of the ones that I've seen. I guess that takes us to the many people's favourite horror film of all time. Mm. Mark Kermode's The Exorcist. 
Yes, before Scott, before we continue, I need you to pop down to Londis and I need you to get me an old priest and a young priest. We're going to buy one, get one free offer or something. <laughs> they, they are. William Friedkin's The Exorcist is one of those rare movies that has truly transcended the cinematic medium and become part of the parlance of our times. Uh, a great deal of myth surrounds the movie both as a piece of cinema and in terms of its production, uh, attributable mainly to the fearless way in which Friedkin, working from William Peter Blatty's screenplay of his own novel, mixed horror, sexual violence, explicit language and religion, frequently within the same scenes. Throw in a hefty dose of pea soup and the mixture is right for some blasphemous Bible baiting that had audiences in 1973 alternately screaming and, if you believe the legends, fainting in the aisles. Uh, so prevalent are these stories along with tales of weird goings on around the production that it's often hard to separate the film from the fantasy. And easy to forget that, brouhaha aside, The Exorcist remains a superb piece of filmmaking over four decades on since its release. For anyone unfamiliar with the plot, Linda, ba uh, Linda, Bear? Linda Blair is Reagan McNeil the young daughter of Ellen Burstyn's Chris McNeil, an actress who has moved temporarily to Washington, D.C. while filming. Reagan passes the time idly messing around with a Ouija board, her mother laughing off the notion of her daughter's new invisible friend, Captain Howdy. It's not long, however, before Reagan's temperament and physical constitution take a turn for the worst, much to the bafflement of local doctors who can find nothing wrong with her, and I'm pretty sure you know much of what happens next, even if you haven't actually seen the movie. As Reagan's fits become more and more violent, they begin to take on a supernatural element, eventually becoming so extreme that local priest Father Karras, played by John Miller, is convinced that the only useful course of action is that most secretive of Catholic rituals, the exorcism. Karras is deemed too inexperienced by the Catholic seniors, and so they call upon the services of Father Merrin, Max von Sudoff, the only readily available priest with a track record in such matters. Cue much moody lighting, rotating heads, inventive use of both language and crucifixes, and the startling suggestion that Karis's recently deceased mother might be preoccupied with somewhat salubrious pursuits in the nether realm. If The Exorcist sounds as though it might be steeped in histrionics, then it most certainly is, though in my humble opinion, once one crosses the line into matters religious, it's all degrees of insanity by default. <laughs> there is some extremely vague theological debate by way of one or two offhand comments from third parties, but Blatty's script never makes the mistake of passing judgement, instead focusing its efforts on relaying a bloody good yarn, and on this occasion, it is all the more enjoyable for it. While it's difficult to argue that the movie has quite the atmospheric impact now that it did in 1973, it's easy to see why initial audiences were caught completely off guard, and The Exorcist does still pack something of a punch. Indeed, the last time I saw this movie was 22 years ago, at the tender age of 15, whereupon a friend suggested we watch a bootlegged VHS copy he had procured, and promptly invited his mother to enjoy it with us. Uh, little surprise, I had no idea what to make of The Exorcist as a movie amidst the discomfort of that particular viewing. <laughs> now, with the benefit of enhanced life experience and a fearless appropriation of the word cut, I can finally attest to The Exorcist very much withstanding the test of time, and that it remains an atmospheric, shocking tale of horror that, while not so terrifying now, still manages to unsettle in a number of ways. Uh, and for once I find myself almost entirely agreeing with Mr. Kermode. This is the first time that I've watched this movie, as I say, in about 22 years. And to sit down now and watch it, I really appreciate what a fantastic movie it is. Although, again, I am fully braced for you to unleash the vitriol cannon and disagree entirely. <laughs> well, I think my problem with Exorcist is that 
by the time I got to see it the first time, it had been parodied to death. Um, mm. I think I saw the Leslie Nielsen vehicle repossessed before I see this, and much as I love Leslie Nielsen, that is one right old turd and no mistake, God. <laughs> Uh, the, the problem that that you have when you when something like this happens is probably roughly the same as what you were saying about Don't Look Now. Mm. Um, I find it difficult to take this seriously. Um, I've, I've seen it a few times now, and each time I kind of just start finding it a bit ridiculous. Um, probably about the same time as the uh, the first subliminal hints of the uh, the demon character kind of gets sort of subliminally cut in, and when you've actually seen a still of that and how goofy looking it is, <laughs> very difficult to take it seriously. Um, in the interests of science, I tried to be a bit more studious about it this time, and on a detached level, yes, this is a really well-made film. Uh, it was really well shot, lots of very creepy things. As I've said, it's, it's one of my favourite uh, film posters of all time. Just like mm. a shot, sort of lovely shot there. Uh, the uh, the lamp, the, the old priest uh, in front of the lamp. Uh, and it's very, it's very well acted. Um, of course, as Sido has Sido ever not looked old? Uh, mm. um, suitably decrepit. Uh, Jason Miller does okay as the the young, barely believing priest who's you know has his own struggles with uh, his faith. And Linda Blair, I think, of course, the most memorable character. And if you can see past the decades of parodies, it's actually some pretty strong performance from the youngster. Mm. Uh, certainly in the earlier going, when she's a. Uh, kind of swinging between what at that point is kind of more traditional antisocial behaviour and her kind of usual sweet self. It's a, it's a really yes. effective uh, difference in character, of course. Somewhat different towards the end of the film when she's... Uh, yes, less attributable her, uh, to ADHD, for example. Yes. Yeah. yeah, as I say, the, the only thing that I, that I that sticks out is just being out of place. It is that kind of subliminal-ish intercutting of the demon with the, the really bad teeth uh, throughout it, which just makes me laugh to this day. Uh, <laughs> it, uh, com- and, and I'll defend Outlook, don't look now, and compared to the way Nick Roeg handles it, it's uh, amateurish in comparison. But, I mean, all the rest of it is <laughs> substantially uh, a better film, uh, better composed, better acted. Better plotted, um, lots of really interesting things going on in it, and uh, yeah, it's it is a good film. It's not a film that I can really take seriously, and it's not a film that mm. I enjoy at a particular level now. As I say, it was ruined substantially before for me before I got anywhere near it, unfortunately. Uh, so I can't really appreciate it on a level that uh, that I would like to. But as I say, just as detached as I can get from it, it is a good film. It's just not a film that I particularly care to watch or care to really think about in any great shapes. Which is fair enough. Uh, I can I can get behind where you're coming from on that. I, I'm obviously, although I'm aware of the parodies and stuff, maybe I've been subjected to fewer of them, or I had less of uh, less of a difficult time sort of detaching myself uh, from those for one reason or another this time round. But I, I'm I'm glad because actually I think I think I was daunted by watching The Exorcist more than any of the other movies for this podcast because I was certain that I wouldn't like it. So a, a pleasant, and for I suppose mainly the reasons that you've outlined. Uh, so I was pleasantly surprised to find that I did actually really enjoy it on this viewing. Uh, to the to the point where I'll probably end up adding it to my library, um, or at least watching it again uh, on a rental at some point in the uh, in the future. But yeah, I can understand why, let's say. And again, it's it's down to it's down to I think in many ways the fact that it is one of those 
um, cultural um, phenomena that transcended its its medium uh, and became something else entirely that has been exposed to so much lampooning and uh, not not ridicule is not the words because there's nothing really to ridicule I don't I don't think but yeah sort of affectionate lampooning and um, appropriation of some of those things for sort of the purposes of meme and whatnot that uh, yeah it might be it might be difficult to view it objectively yes I obviously I, I so yeah it, it's just one of those films that um, when it has the reputation that it has uh, which is I mean it's routinely lauded as not only one of the best horror films ever but it's, it's lauded as one of the best films ever mm. uh, so it's the same which kind of I, thing I can't, I can't quite get behind that uh, assertion when people make that but uh, yeah, yeah. But I mean, it's the same sort of stigma that you'd have when you go and watch something like Citizen Kane. It's like, how could this possibly live up to the reputation that it has? Mm. Uh, and that's a, a significant mental block, I think, for a lot of people. But I don't think that is worth... Uh, I think that is something that is worth getting over. I think even if you figure you might not like this at the end of the day, if you do, even if you do think you've been ruined by the parodies I have, it's still a film I think you need to watch to understand mm. cinema. Um, mm. Certainly, if it's something you need to watch if you want to have any kind of appreciation for horror and how it's changed in the last forty uh, odd years. Yes, I think actually that's a pretty good uh, observation. I think if you were to pick one film from this list tonight that if you hadn't seen any of them, that that you really should see in terms of how how it informed filmmaking as a craft uh, in its in its wake, then yeah, I reckon you're probably right there. I think this is this is probably the one that you should uh, you should uh, watch. Good call. And sorry, what what of uh, what are we speaking of next? This brings us on to the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, which is the only film on this list that deemed so horrific that it was banned in the UK, uh, becoming one of the small band of video nasties that were surreptitiously passed around as many generation VHS copies uh, from that one shop in the region that imported a Laserdisc in the mid-80s before the BBFC belatedly came to its senses. It seems particularly egregious in the Texas Chainsaw Massacre's case, but, well, we'll get to that. The film itself, uh, after disturbing reports of grave robbing that may affect their grandfather's burial ground, Marilyn Burns's Sally Hardesty and her wheelchair-bound brother Franklin, played by Paul A. Partain, return to their old hometown to investigate. Along for the ride are their friends, Jerry, played by Alan Danziger, Kirk, played by William Vale, and Pam, Terry McMinn. Uh, they are further planning to take a jolly jaunt up to the Hardesty's old homestead. The initial signs that things are going to get really strange come... Well, actually, firstly, they come from this weird old geezer sitting in a tyre. <laughs> uh, but ar- arguably, the first hints of danger come from a goofy-looking hitchhiker, played by Edward Neal, who starts lamenting the arguably more humane methods of cattle kiddling at the local slaughterhouse. It's good. <laughs> It's quite the much ice preferring these, yeah, <laughs> He much prefers the simplicity of battering the cows with a hammer rather than this newfangled bolt gun to the head idea or the chigur method, as I believe it's called. <laughs> uh, after Franklin refuses to purchase an unasked for Polaroid, the hitchhiker, hitchhiker slashes out at Franklin with a pocket knife, leading to the freak being ejected from the camper van. Uh, actually, that's not quite right, actually. Uh, the, the freak slashes out with the, with the pocket knife first, then takes the photograph and is for some reason upset that they won't buy that full Polaroid of that <laughs> location. Yes, he's he's a strange fruit. Uh, anyway, he he gets kicked out, and the the mystery squad, the the rest of the gang, use the last of their petrol to continue on to the their now dilapidated dilapidated old home. Despite the warnings of the apparently kindly old petrolless petrol station owner, played by Jim Sido, and set about exploring their surroundings. 
Kirk and Pam go off in search of a nearby swimming hole, only to find it as dry as a bone. However, they do hear a generator in the middle distance, and hoping to buy some petrol from them, I suppose, they head towards the ominous shack. Kirk entering, only to be greeted by the hulking Leatherface, played by the splendidly named Gunnar Hansen, and a crushing blow to the head. So begins the conga line of the damned, as one by one they try to investigate where the other members of the party have gone, only to find uh, the beast that is the reason for the disappearance, and the creepy bone-strewn home that he lives in. It seems like Sally may be able to escape after a daring dive through a second-story window, but it transpires that the petrol station owner that she pleads with for help is the father, I assume, of both Leatherface and the disturbed hitchhiker, who returns for the final act and recaptures Sally for a very uncomfortable family meal, along with their surprisingly not dead, given the state of him, grandpa, played by John (laughs) Dogan. Now, certainly in the UK, given its prohibition, the reputation of this film very much precedes it. It's held up as the apex of nasty, violent horror, so it's surprising to me when finally watching this film, sometime after its de-banning back in 99, to find that there's almost no explicit violence in the film at all. Uh, Director Toby Hooper has cleverly shot this, such that with, I think, with the exception of that one vehicle-slash-man-flesh interface scenario, the only on-screen violence is one minor knife wound and that bloodless mid to long shot of a boy getting stop hammer timed mm-hmm. uh, you might think you saw Franklin being sliced and diced with a chainsaw but actually you didn't you might think you saw Pam being impaled on a meat hook but actually you saw someone standing on a box in front of a meat hook saying how oh dear how frankly inconvenient this meat hook impalation is I shall <laughs> certainly miss my lunch appointment at Abernethy uh, that might have been the Kensington Chainsaw Massacre, actually. Uh, (laughs) Anyway, the point is not to downplay the violence in Texas Chainsaw Massacre, explicit or implied, which is essentially the point of the film. Hooper reflecting the cold, graphic, heartless coverage of the outcome of violence, both domestically in the news footage and from Vietnam, with the act of violence in this film, and unwittingly set the template for a lot of the slasher films that followed it, each upping the ante until we're left with something like the blood-drenched annoyance hostel. Unquestionably, this is worth watching for the shadow that it cast over every slasher film that followed it, and it's a masterclass in effective low-budget filmmaking. I do not, however, find it remotely scary or threatening in this day and age, perhaps as a result of me coming to this significantly later in the day. In fact, I find much of this film unwittingly hilarious, bar maybe the incessant whining of Franklin of no real issue with any of the victims. Particularly Marilyn Burns, who's as good at screaming and looking scared as anyone I've ever seen, but the things that she's reacting to creates an unintended humorous juxtaposition for me. <laughs> While the masked Leatherface is a looming, monstrous presence most of the time, the lengthy scenes of him chasing Sally through the woods, swinging a chainsaw, just begs to be speeded up slightly with a yakety sax playing over it, and <laughs> Edward Neal and Jim Sidehouse <laughs> final act gurning is so over the top that it's halfway through No Man's Land getting blown up by a German landmine. <laughs> True slapstick, however, ensues when Grandpa's given the honour of attempting to kill Sally with a hammer which would be worthy of any Buster Keaton routine were it not about attempting to kill someone with a hammer. The Korean Buster Keaton perhaps. Uh, So, uh, comedy gold for me at least. If it's thrills and spills you're looking for and you become accustomed to the gratuitous explicit violence that the genre has devolved into this is going to be tough to take seriously. But its historical footprint, however, does mean that this film warrants viewing, uh, but probably more as a historical artefact than an instrument of true horror. Did I assert earlier on that Don't Look Now was the only film I hadn't seen amongst this group? 
I think I might have done, yes. Uh, And of course, immediately upon you saying that we would progress on to the Texas Chainsaw Massacre there, I realised that was totally wrong. I hadn't seen the Texas Chainsaw Massacre before. Um, Although partly that uh, lapse in memories down to the fact that it's one of those films that you probably feel like you've seen, even if you haven't, because again... Uh, such a cultural phenom that uh, I'm not sure how I avoided watching it up until this point, I think. Uh, And I'd very much assumed what the movie was and what I would take from it, and perhaps that's why I hadn't bothered watching it up until this point. Uh, This will count as my most pleasant surprise uh, of this particular podcast because I actually found a lot to enjoy. Mm -hmm. Like you say, very much a a masterclass in low-budget movie making. There is a surprising amount of pleasure to be found in the pacing of the film the writing of the film not so much but the cinematography actually um, is particularly interesting and there's one or two shots in there that I did not expect that I absolutely loved but what the film does best is this kind of relentless matter of factness with which it deals with its protagonists Um, as you say, it's very difficult to come away from any of these movies feeling genuinely chilled, um, uh, perhaps just because of the exposure we've had to ultraviolence and whatnot in recent years of, of uh, cinema. But you can understand why at the time this movie probably unsettled audiences. And a lot of that is, I think, down to the fact it's it feels far more realistic in its portrayal of violence oh, yes. because it's so bloodless. And like you say, that, see, that scene where Kirk walks in a door, gets blatted on the head with a hammer, yeah, falls yeah. down, gets blatted again, dragged off, and the door slams shut, all of which happens in roughly the same amount of time it took for me to describe it there. Um, it is so ruthless, is I think the word I want to use, yeah. and so almost anticlimactic that it almost, it almost leaves you stunned. Um, because it's not what I was expecting at all. And let you say that this was banned in the UK under the Video Nasties Act thingamabob. Um, is a little bit baffling because it's actually far less explicit than its reputation would suggest. There is... If I have one gripe about this film, it is Franklin. While a very some common of, grave, isn't mm, it? <laughs> so I understand. While the other performances, one or two of the other performances, and I'm thinking the hitchhiker in particular, are less than accomplished, but perhaps get away with it under the extremes of the nature of those characters, you can kind mm. of pass off that performance. Franklin <laughs> is... I don't, the bag composed entirely of douche. Yeah, and I was I so your partane fellow who plays Franklin. I read his IMDb uh, bio uh, three or four days ago when I watched this, after I'd watched it because I wanted to know where this guy was coming from, and laughably he's described as a method actor, uh, or certainly he self-described as a method actor from what I can understand. And let us not let us not speak ill of the dead because Mister Partain is is no longer with us. But uh, no, actually, actually, we probably should speak ill of the dead because he is reprehensibly atrocious in this. There is one scene when they go first go into the house and the others are upstairs and he has this little monologue all to himself about, oh, Franklin, you know, and he starts blowing the most egregiously over-the-top raspberries 
at the others <laughs> from downstairs where they clearly can't hear him. But it's just, I have no idea. The whole performance is so woefully misjudged. And if I were Toby Hooper, that particular scene serves no narrative purpose. Um, within within the framework of that movie, if I were Toby Hooper, I would have looked at that performance and I would have gone, "That nah, okay, we'll just cut that scene out because if that is the best that guy could deliver, I have rarely been so irritated by a character who wasn't played by who's your Juice Bigelow fella, Rob Schneider. Rob Schneider. I have rarely been so irritated by a character who wasn't played by Rob Schneider in all of the movies that I've ever watched. Um, as I was by Franklin in this movie and I feel like I've expended enough oxygen talking about him already but if for some reason you haven't seen this movie be warned that that performance is a pretty difficult bridge to cross if you can, uh, like me you may just end up pleasantly surprised by this movie and uh, yes, it's very easy to see how this uh, was a shock to audiences at the time and how it informed the genre from this point onwards Uh, and yeah, like I say, very pleasantly surprised and again, uh, one that I may just end up adding to my collection because I think there's enough there to warrant repeat viewing. Yeah, so I'll just mention a few things well, one thing off the Twitter, so our friend Matt Toller at M. Toller, uh, didn't see this until 2004 and he found it a much more sophisticated effort than he'd expected and uh, even had some downright artistic touches and indeed it does. Mm, yeah, uh, I would agree with that. For all I josh this film uh, and I find the, the final act of it be to be over the top to the point of comedy um, it does a more effective job in the first, I don't know, eight tenths maybe of the film uh, in, in building up horror and sort of building up these characters and building up a truly monstrous uh, presence stalking them uh, than anything I've seen in recent times um, and yes it does look particularly good for something that is so cheaply made mm-hmm. um, or inexpensively made perhaps it's not cheap that's, that's perhaps the wrong wrong thing because it doesn't look cheap uh, a lot of the time it looks uh, like it's been you know, very carefully arranged in the, mm-hmm. the way that it's uh, spent its money it's perhaps the most efficient use of capital I think I've seen in filmmaking yet yeah, um, quite possibly yes uh, yes, uh, certainly things to enjoy. And as I say, if nothing else, like many of these films, but this one in particular, I think it's very wor- well worth watching as a uh, historical document. Uh, I did see the remake. I cannot remember a <laughs> damn thing about it, so I shan't say anything more about that. But perhaps that's all you need to know. Um, if you can't really remember, it's probably not worth remembering. The one that was um, exec produced by Michael Bay, if I remember yes. correctly. <laughs> Michael <laughs> Bay presents. Oh, he does, does he? Uh, yeah, so give that one a skip and put this one on your list because, yes, it's certainly worth yes. taking a look at. And you um, too could find yourself saying, where did you get that lampshade? <laughs> Is that Ikea? <laughs> not, no, no, it's not. Definitely <laughs> isn't. Definitely isn't. But um, I want one. And if you have any interest in the film, of course, I will I'll give another plug out to the Magic Lanterns podcast that you did some time back. It was the one of their earlier podcasts. Was Episode the, 6, I think. Something like that, yes. And it's all about the Texas Chainsaw Massacre and it is a very entertaining listen, so give that one a, a go. Uh, but from there, we go to one of the other one of the other classics of horror, The Omen. Oh, it's all for you, Damien. If that line recalls the dread night you first sat up watching The Omen as a 12-year-old, having taped it off the telly, then welcome to the gang. Um... <laughs> 
<laughs> I'm not ashamed to say that as a young lad I was scared out of my wits by Richard Donner's 1976 efforts here uh, and The Omen still holds up as a pretty decent yarn to this day despite again having lost a great deal of its shock value like most of the movies we've discussed here Gregory Peck is Robert Thorne recently promoted to the role of US Ambassador to the UK. Robert's wife, Catherine, Lee Remick, recently lost her first child during labour while the couple were resident in Italy, but is unaware of the fact that the child was stillborn. What Catherine also fails to realise is that her husband, under advice from the hospital's priest, decides that the optimal course of action would be to swap in a newborn child whose mother has just passed away at the same time. As you do. Things apparently go well up until young Damien's fifth birthday, whereupon his nanny hangs herself from the upper window of the residence in full view of the party, and a strange, ominous-looking Rottweiler. From this point on, things go steeply downhill, with Damien's aversion to all things church-related mirrored in the untimely and grisly deaths of those who are around him who suspect something may be wrong. Amidst the chaos is news photographer Keith Jennings, David Warner, who is on to the fact evil forces are at play, a fact borne out by his discovery that strange, ominous markings adorn the prints he makes of photographs that seem to predict who will die next and vaguely in what manner. Keith is rightly concerned that a picture in which he has caught his own reflection seems to show one such anomaly intersecting his neck, and anyone who has seen the movie will know how spectacularly that little <laughs> premonition comes to pass. Uh, the Omen once again has a reputation for having unsettled audiences, though a lot of that may have been down to canny marketing execs witnessing how such reports bolstered the box office of The Exorcist. And in keeping with most of the other movies we've discussed here, a good deal of that impact has since gone. Once the stage curtain are removed, one sees the omen for what it is a proto-final destination where one after another gruesome deaths are queued up for the delight of the audience where it succeeds beyond something such as Don't Look Now is that the omen bears little of that movie's pretense at artistry instead embracing itself for what it is, an audience-pleasing roller coaster of gleeful gruel that is fast-paced enough to have better withstood the test of time. By no means a masterpiece, the omen is nonetheless wonderfully entertaining and still comes out on top in a grudge match against almost any modern horror movie you care to mention. Let's just avoid any mention of the increasingly bonkers and disappointing sequels. Um, I, <laughs> I was actually pleasantly surprised because it's been a long time since I watched The Omen and to go back here and uh, I, I expected the breaks to go on but I actually enjoyed it almost as much as the first time I watched it, Scott. Um, I haven't seen the remake, I know you did, um, which I understand is pretty much a shot-for-shot shot affair, right? Yeah. You're begging the question, why bother? But exactly. this, I was, I was kind of surprised at how well this holds up as a piece of entertainment if, again, not particularly a horror movie yeah it is of all the films we speak about the one film i've seen more often than any of the other ones and it's a film that i never fail to enjoy mm -hmm. uh, i i do think it's it's just held up so much better uh, i guess it, it, again it helps being an older film uh, one of the more common tropes of recent horror films is that all the protagonists must be at the oldest 22 and a half mm -hmm. uh, which has the unfortunate side effect of stuffing many films with protagonists that aren't all that great at acting uh, mm -hmm. having barely had time to learn to pay their own bills let or, alone their dues or all that <laughs> sympathetic uh, precisely um whereas the, the omen is kind of represents the the lost art art of upping your acting game just by casting some really great actors regardless mm -hmm. of age uh, you know guys like it's just 
a lot of really great performances by Gregory Peck, David Warner, Lee Remick, Billy Whitelaw, Patrick Trotten, um, and they bring a lot of intensity and believability to material that is not in any way, shape, or form believable. No, and um, again, it says something about the genre at the time and how excited people were by it that you got people like Gregory Peck not doing this to pick up the paycheck, but because they were interested in it as a project. Yes. Yes, and it, I think it works. I think it's, it's a really great yarn. Um, whether you find it scary or not is probably a different thing, but I mean, it is. I, I tend not to like supernatural horrors, certainly anything like as much as psychological, because I, I just don't believe any of it. It's, mm-hmm. it's, it's an initial. It makes my suspension of disbelief uh, a lot harder in the initial one when it's a belief system that I don't actually share in the slightest. Mm-hmm. Uh, but of all the supernatural horrors, this one is probably playing with the biggest stakes, after all. Who's more of a bad guy than Satan himself? <laughs> uh, the answer to that, of course, is Vince McMahon during his feud with Stone Cold Steve Austin in the late 90s WWF. He was even the head of his own dark ministry. Um, <laughs> <laughs> or perhaps <laughs> Donald Trump. Yes, but it's, it's a very great heel to go up against. And uh, yeah, but I, I actually fancy Gregory Peck's chances for a lot of it. So it does a great job in kind of making that struggle kind of seem believable. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's other lots of other little nice points in it. Uh, I think it has perhaps the greatest, most ominous horror film ever recorded in that kind of creepy choir old chance of Ave Satini, mm-hmm. uh, which definitely isn't your usual Jerry Goldsmith joint, um, <laughs> but it's a tremendously effective. Um, and I think perhaps the master stroke is with a little bit of careful editing you could if you squint at it and look a bit funny uh, view this as a psychological horror about a father undergoing an extreme reaction to guilt over the circumstances of the adoption mm-hmm. and wildly misinterpreting some unfortunate accidents um, but you know, regardless of that I think it just holds together really well as a narrative, it's got a tremendous cast and it treats the source material with a lot of respect which is perhaps why I enjoy it so much mm-hmm. uh, for me this is the film I like most on this list, mm. I'll argue you could argue me whether or not it's the best film on the list, but it's the one that I've enjoyed the most every time I've watched it, and it stands up for me better than any of the other films on this list for multiple watching. And as you mentioned, yeah, but it even survived being remade. The 2006 version is a perfectly decent film, um, but as mentioned, entirely pointless. Just watch the original over it. Uh, it's uh, effectively exactly the same film, but with a somewhat better cast. So yes, mm. I, I would certainly recommend giving this one a go. It's just a really great film. Uh, I don't find it scary anymore, but then again, that's because I've seen it a good number of times since I first watched it, probably around about the same kind of age as you were. And yes, it's, it's much easier to be scared of things like uh, the decapitation when you've not seen it so often. But uh, yeah, well, well, it's not scaring me so much these days. Still a very good film. How many how many times did we rewind that 50? seconds of VHS <laughs> watch that over and over going whoa that's the best thing I've ever seen yes and it shows their confidence in the effect that they had to they show it all in slow motion it's, uh, and it's from lingered over 37 different over. angles <laughs> Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Obviously Donner was like, right, get me get me five panaflexes down here. Yes. I want I want every <laughs> angle on this head. Um yeah, no, I can I can understand where you're coming from there. Uh I can I can see entirely why. I think you're right. I don't arguably it's it's not the the best piece of filmmaking on the list, but I can uh, I can get behind your assertion that you find it the most enjoyable. I can't I can't argue with that. Which that's subjective opinions for you. <laughs> that's it. <laughs> <laughs> I finally figured out how that works um, Which leaves us with Halloween Yes, uh, John 
Johnny Carpenter taking his first stab at out-and-out horror off the back of The Incredible Assault on Precinct 13, which has to be in a shout of being the world's best sophomore directorial effort. Uh And I'm I'm sure we'll get to John Carpenter one day in these podcasts. So Halloween teaches us that psychopathy starts at a very young age, with a prologue where young Michael Myers stabs his sister to death. He's condemned to a sanitarium under the watch of Dr. Loomis, played by Doctor, uh, played by Donald Pleasance, for what was meant to be a long time, but Myers manages to escape. On legal advice, I'm at this point obligated to clarify that we're not talking about Canadian funny man Mike Myers, mm-hmm. or at least the becoming less funny with every passing year man Mike Myers. Um, Loomis deduces that he's likely to be headed back to his home field, uh, hometown of Haddonfield, Illinois, and heads off to convince Sheriff Lee Brackett, played by Charles Cyphers, both of Myers and Tents, not good, and Sanity, not present. While, uh, Meanwhile, Myers has found a natty boiler suit and pale white mask combo that really brings out the crazy in his eyes and sets about looking for targets near his old home. He settles on Laurie Strode, played by Jamie Lee Curtis, and her two best friends, Linda Vanderklok, uh, PJ Souls, and the sheriff's daughter, Annie, played by Nancy Loomis. Annie and Linda are more of the free-spirited, adventurous types, with Laurie being rather more straight-laced. Both Annie and Laurie are engaged as babysitters for Halloween night, but Annie convinces Laurie to pull double duty so that she can run off with her boyfriend. Later on, Linda will show up with her boyfriend, looking for a location for some adult fun time, and, well, those aforementioned horror movies, horror movie rules from Scream are very much in full effect here, uh, which is a rather reductive recap of the plot, but in essence there's no narrative arc to this other than Myers stalking, tracking and killing his prey, with Laurie being the only one to survive thanks to her own bravery and a timely intervention from Dr. Loomis and his handgun. But Mm -hmm. of course, you can't truly kill the evil that Loomis believes Myers to be, leading to a run of increasingly dismal sequels and remakes. (laughs) Um, And it's easy to be a little glib about Halloween because in a great many ways it became the template for every slasher film that followed it, even more so than Texas Chainsaw Massacre. to the point where you eventually needed something like Scream to point out just how codified the genre had become, and that might make Halloween the most influential film on this list, even if it's the one that's on paper uh, has been uh, should have aged the most due to its slew of imitators. But that is selling it very short, as Halloween remains one of the most effective slasher movies I've seen. Carpenter has a great sense of how to build tension through his camera movements, the framing, and yes, of course, that soundtrack. Carpenter's naff little riffs somehow become a far more uh, build far more tension than an orchestral score could, not just in this film and a lot of the others he's composed for. And innovation might be overselling it, but the use of Meyer's point of view was certainly not common in the genre at the time, and it does a great job of bringing the audience closer to the action, and almost putting you in his shoes. I'm sure there's a few people hoping that VR takes off to enable a new form of cinema that will put us even closer to the action, and I'm not completely sure if that's a positive trait for encouraging inhumanity. Um, uh, For a relative unknown at the time, uh, Jamie Lee Curtis puts in a compelling performance and manages to pull that rarest of feats to the genre, being a protagonist that you actually quite like and hope it doesn't wind up on the business end of a blade. Uh, While I don't think I've ever found this particularly scary, I do enjoy the film a great deal. Carpenter's one of my favourite writer-directors, and this is one of the six or so films of his that I really, really love. And Most of the rest of his work, worst, I don't mind, and we've all agreed not to talk about Ghosts of Mars. (laughs) So... So yes, in many regards, this feels like the Ur slasher, but even if the genre feels oversaturated and played out now, it's certainly worth looking again at the original that has been photocopied so often. Yeah, um, 
surprisingly this time i've i've watched halloween a great many times over the over the years and it was already part of my collection of the films that we're speaking about tonight um, that i was already familiar with it's the one that actually disappointed me the most when i came back to it this time and uh, again i think you're absolutely right it is easily the most influential regardless of your feelings on it it's easily the most influential movie um on this list you i guarantee you that if you look at your local multiplex listing there will be a film showing today that owes this film a debt of gratitude in in some respect or another Carpenter is he as as a director um Carpenter's always really interested me because his early works were so um phenomenal and he seemed to go off the boil so spectacularly <laughs> even even with films uh, that I still have a fondness for I think other people don't such as Prince of Darkness I think people um a, a great deal of people don't find that um to be a particularly good film I've got a particular fondness for it but I think one way or other you can argue that pretty much at any point after that, there's no debate to be had. Um, I don't think he's made a good film since. Here, as genre-defining as this is, for one reason or another, I found myself really irked by the cack-handedness of Loomis as a character, <laughs> and also really yeah. frustrated, yeah, and re- also really frustrated by the uh, the supernatural element to the film. And I think more than anything, that comes from this trope of the you know of the killer who can't be killed and how worn out that is now i just can't seem to get over that but the way this movie handles it and the sort of distant look in loomis's eyes every time he says something ridiculous like he is pure evil yeah, um, can I, perhaps i could just interject because it's yes <laughs> uh, but not a comment from matt toller uh, just rewatch halloween a lot of the conversation revolved around myers nature slash supernature a specific look her opinions specifically about loomis he's evil incarnate line that does he know more than he lets on um which is kind of what we're talking about here uh, it's the sort of thing I, that, i'll say no no um <laughs> a lot of it i think is just a really let's cards to the table it's a terrible performance uh, oh. from Donald Pleasance who's capable of so much more and it was the single most expensive thing in this shoot was getting him there for a, a couple of days that it took to oh yeah to, it was like to blandly a fifth of the budget or something right yeah and uh, it, I think it'd be a lot easier to argue this one way or the other if it wasn't just objectively quite a poor performance that mm-hmm. he just seems like he would be delivering any line with that sort of bland detachment that uh, he delivers the stuff where he's evil incarnate with mm-hmm. I don't think you get the impression that he's something who's he's someone who's seen things and is scarred by them I just get the impression yes. of someone who's showing up for a very quick paycheck and is very very concerned with what he's going to have for dinner that night yeah um, he just seems distant in a way that is uh, that of a disengaged actor than anything to do with the plot, which is yeah. a, a real shame for someone as talented as uh, Donald Pleasance. Yeah, and the movie's logic is um, so disassociated from reality, out of necessity to the plot, really, because there's no other way to explain what happens. But the fact that no one at the institution where he's been housed seems particularly bothered by the fact that he's released now. There's no follow-up to that. Uh, In fact, um, I think Loomis at one point speaks to someone from the institution afterwards, and nobody's all that bothered about the fact that (laughs) Michael Myers disappeared, and that if he is truly as evil and as dangerous as we are led to believe and in fact is quite clearly demonstrated earlier in the film yes the fact that he um then escapes and there isn't a massive manhunt for him
room. Instead, what you get is Loomis having a quiet word with a local sheriff and the pair of them sneaking around in some bushes <laughs> in the dark, choosing that course of action, unquestionably placing lives at risk and making themselves responsible for the deaths of any number of people who could have been saved if they simply got the federal authorities involved at the appropriate <laughs> juncture, i.e. the very start of the film. Um, it's I, I cannot see past that plot logic. And the minute... The minute you invoke the boogeyman, and it's not its not so much a problem for this movie as it was for the sequels, obviously, because if this yeah. had been the only Halloween film, then fine, so be it. The minute you invoke the spectre of this creature, this person who isn't a person, there's something more supernatural than that, and who doesn't die even after being unloaded on by Dr. Loomis <laughs> and fallen <laughs> off a balcony, etc., etc., then you have just utterly removed the stakes and any form of tension from your movie whatsoever. And what you're left with is a shooting gallery. Um, It's just, it's such a nonsensical uh, plot device. And when I watch it now, I still kind of enjoyed it. But as I say, I was actually really disappointed on this viewing that that stuff pulled the rug out from underneath it for me. And I can't help but think that with a few sort of, easy sanity checks on that stuff and a couple of fairly easy revisions to the script, you could have circumvented a lot of that stuff um, and actually future-proofed this movie up the up the wazoo. But, I mean, as it stands, it, it is the template, it is the original, and it is still arguably the best mm-hmm. slasher movie we've seen since. It's just that I think by now I'm so tired of the tropes and stupid holes and plot logic that we've seen since that I find it almost unforgivable now, which is a shame. Because, I mean, this is broadly regarded as one of, if not Carpenter's best works. Yeah, I don't know. It's maybe one of those things where I just, it's, you know, the mood I was in when I watched it a few days ago or whatever. But, it's as I say, it was already part of my collection. I probably will watch it again in a few years' time and let's see what shakes out then. Yeah, I do wonder if the original drafts were that Byers dies at the end and someone thought, well, we could have a sequel hook here. Because really the only change you need to make is have him not disappear at the end. Mm-hmm. And that would be a markedly different film from viewing it from that perspective. Uh, but yeah, as you say, the supernatural things, kind of takes the shine off it. I mean, even... You, you, you There's just even, no need to invoke that. No, um, it just doesn't make any sense. You could you could easily retcon that in your sequels if you need to. Just you could even do it without having him uh, explicitly be supernatural. Just have him have a bulletproof vest underneath it or something like <laughs> that. Would work. It would, it would, something as daft as that would be more than <laughs> more than suitable for what you intend to do with, this, with these movies. But uh, yeah, it's a it's a strange thing. But I don't think for me it took the shine off. I still enjoy it quite a lot. I still find so. A fair amount of things to like in it. Uh, pleasance aside, lots of pretty decent performances that kind of uh, portray terror better than an awful lot of people that we've seen since. Um, mm. And uh, certainly, the, I find the characters in this, even the ones who, who you know aren't going to survive, uh, still find them a bit more sympathetic than the usual array of ne'er do wells we get subjected to in mo- more recent films. Um, yeah, yes. I, I still enjoy it, but uh, yes, I can easily see your point why you might not. Yes. Um, but I suppose in summation, Scott, the 70s, is it still truly the golden period of horror cinema? Well, hmm. as much as it's allowed a golden period, eh? Yeah, I mean, I think more films stand out as kind of still being quite entertaining from then now than I would imagine films from now would. Um, mm-hmm. It's hard to say because there's always the odd film here and there that gets the reputation and uh, becomes somewhat enjoyable. But uh, mm-hmm. I don't think I- we'll see anything as good as these. 
No, I just I think the the problem with these films is that it's just we've been beset by such a surge um, of dross in the genre over the last 20, 30 years that it's very difficult to view these through the appropriate lens now. Yeah. Um, it's very difficult to enjoy them um, in the mindset um, intended uh, from the period that they were produced. But I was pleasantly surprised by uh, several of these movies and how enjoyable they still remain, if not, um, uh, you know, if not outright scary. And that's clearly the mark of good filmmaking because if you can remove... The the reason for being from some of these um, from some of these titles and still enjoy them as pieces of filmmaking, then that tends to suggest that they're very well made films. Mm. So um, I, there's I don't think there's anything. Do you know what? Even don't look now. I'd be willing to give another viewing just to see whether or not I was I was being a little bit too uh, blasé about it. But there's 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 nothing on this list that I would object to watching again at some point if someone said, "Oh, can we watch this?" Yeah, I mean, I actually like all films on this list. Um, mm. Some would say Don't Look Now is a bit weaker uh, justification for it than others, but I still like it, and I like all the rest of them as well, and I enjoy mm. watching them. So, yes, uh, yeah, definitely worth a look. Uh, do you have any particular favourite? Is it The Wicker Man, as you mentioned? Uh, I think it's pretty close between The Wicker Man and The Exorcist, although, as I say, my most pleasant surprise was Texas Chainsaw, which is uh, a quite a remarkable feat of filmmaking, even now. Uh, yes, that's... That, those would be my picks. If you haven't seen any of those, I'd heartily recommend that, but I'm not going to beef with anything on this list. Mm-hmm. I still perhaps enjoy The Omen more than anything else, but I did consult the wisdom of crowds on the Google Plus 151 oh. votes on this particular poll. Sadly, I can only think you can get uh, five choices, so I, mm-hmm. I, 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 I dropped I Don't Look Now from it. Sorry, of these 151 votes, 51% go for The Exorcist as their favourite, which uh, wow. probably broadly in line with uh, opinion. I was a little surprised to see 22% going for Halloween, uh, mm. 15% with The Omen at third, Texas Chainsaw Massacre down at 10 and Wicker Man on 3%, perhaps with the most obscure of them down there, I guess. But uh, I thought I might see Texas Chainsaw a bit higher up than that, but uh, there yeah. you go. Yeah. I wonder is Wicker Man is Wicker Man a very British thing? Does it, does it have much it of an international audience? Um, I'm sure it does amongst uh, some of the horror fiction adults, but mm. um, it's maybe it's, it's the one on the list. That, yes, yeah. maybe it's the one on the list that those outside of Britain are least likely to have seen. In which case, I would say fast track yourself to that. Yes, that's a good. That is a good a rationale as any. Yes. So I guess that's your lot for now. As I say, if you've roundly disagree with any of these points, or is there anything else you want to discuss, please give us a shout. Hit us up on Twitter at Fuds on Film or Facebook, facebook.com slash Fuds on Film, or even on your old emails podcast at Fuds on Film dot com. <laughs> uh, we'll be back on the 10th and this will be us looking at uh, a scanner darkly and radio free album with, with some Philip K. Dick action for you so well, looking forward to well, looking forward to at least watching half of those films <laughs> for the podcast <laughs> I'm not so sure about um, but yeah we'll be, we'll be coming your way fairly soon with that but until then it's a goodbye from me and I suppose it's going to be goodbye from Craig uh, who can't think of an outro quote tonight so goodbye <laughs> <laughs> If you were going to continue with the uh, Wicker Man thing, you'd have to read that the Lord is your shepherd and he shall not want. And, and we'd be here all bloody night. Yeah, whatever that's all yeah. is to do to the end, yeah. We're not yeah. having that. Nah. We're not having that. <laughs> no way, mate. <laughs>